0: Welcome to the StoryWorth podcast. We're glad you're here for our special Father's Day episode. I'm your host, Krista Baum, co-founder of StoryWorth. On this podcast, we feature true stories written by StoryWorth writers. If you're new to StoryWorth, we help people write their life stories, the big stories and the small ones. Once a week, we send our writers a question to help inspire their writing. They reply to the email with an answer or a story that comes to mind. At the end of the year, we print what they've written into a beautiful keepsake book. Every story written using StoryWorth is private, but for this podcast, the writers volunteered to share their stories publicly with you. We're celebrating Father's Day with some of our most beloved stories about the men in the family, from tales of baseball games and grilling on the back porch to the deep love and fear that come along with fatherhood. This episode has it all. The first story comes from Robert Trumbly as he answers the question, what was your father like when you were a kid?
1: My dad was a tough guy. He was born five miles from the Canadian border in Malone, New York on a farm that my grandpa owned. He was one of six kids who worked that farm from dawn to dusk. It was a rough life. They didn't have much. In fact, the only real gift my father ever received aside from essentials like clothing or shoes was a pocket watch that his father gave him after graduating from the eighth grade. The children were all very independent and had their jobs to do on the farm. The family was stoic and the men rarely showed affection in a demonstrative way. During his chores one day, my father found his younger brother, George, hanging from the main rafter in the barn. He apparently had been lowering hay from the loft and the rope caught him around the neck. I found this out from my mother when I was well into my teens. My father was the one who found him and took him down. Can you imagine that horrific experience? My father never spoke of it. He meant what he said and said what he meant. And if he told you to do something, you did it and you didn't question him. He had a razor strap, you know, the kind that the old barber shops had with the layer of leather and asbestos. And you got that good if you misbehaved. But my brother and I, My sister was never involved in any form of discipline at all. She was a princess. My brother and I never felt unloved. There wasn't a mean bone in my dad's body. We never questioned that he loved us, but he never showed it or said it. And we very rarely, if ever, saw him cry. I guess he saw it as weakness or was taught that it's not how a man behaves. Being the third of three children, I was desperate for attention, and I guess I spent my lifetime trying to make my parents and everyone else laugh. I accepted my dad's authority and personality, but I was nothing like him. However, a major change in our relationship occurred in 1975 when I was in Air Force Tech School in Biloxi, Mississippi. One night, I was the airman in charge of the dorm that we were housed in. This was a responsibility that rotated between airmen, and you were responsible for everything that happened in the dorm at night. I was 18 years old. A female major visited our office around 2 a.m. and approached my desk. I snapped to attention was taken totally off guard by this visit of an officer in the night. I saw that she was a chaplain and had serious business to perform. She told me that I was to wake an airman in the dorm up and bring him to her because his father had died suddenly. He was an 18-year-old kid just like me. I ran up the stairs with an awful feeling in my heart. Here I was retrieving this young man to bring him downstairs to the chaplain so that she could tell him that his father had died. All the way back to the office, the kid questioned me. Why? What happened? Is everything okay? Am I in trouble for something? I remember feeling so terrible that I knew that his father had passed before he did. What right did I have to know this information before he did? When he saw the chaplain, his face turned ashen and the door to the conference room closed. It was awful. The scream that emerged from that room moments after haunts me to this day. It was at that exact moment, that exact moment that I realized that at 18 years old, I was 18 years old and had never told my father, as an adult anyway, that I loved him. I mean, that I never said the words out loud. Dad just wasn't the type to talk that way and was uncomfortable with emotion. I remember feeling the dread and fear that something would happen to me before I could get to tell him myself. So at that moment, I made it my mission to get home as soon as possible so that I could tell him how much I loved him and how much he meant to me. On my first leave, I took all the money I had earned, bought a ticket home, and flew back to Flushing, New York. I wasted no time. I barged into the house and said a quick hello to and kissed my mom and moved directly into the room where dad was. In tears, I grabbed him and hugged him and told him emotionally how much I loved him and that I wanted him to know it. Dad cried as he hugged me back and told me that he loved me too. From that night forward until the day of his death, our relationship changed. We never missed an opportunity to hug, kiss, and tell each other that we loved each other. My dad became a softie. And my children never saw anything other than love or affection from their grandpa. That night changed my life. And I'm glad I got the opportunity to tell my dad how much he was loved. Don't ever waste a chance to tell your loved ones what they mean to you. It's just too important.
0: Rob, how did you get started writing?
1: I'm pretty... um, animated on on the internet as far as Facebook is concerned. And I tell a lot of stories. My daughter and I, we don't talk every day. She talks to her mom, I'm the dad, you know. I started to write these stories on Facebook and for my birthday, she sent me uh, this this story worth package. And I just got into the swing of it and I started to write it. It These things just poured out of me and it amazes me.
0: I see, so Facebook status has inspired Dina to get you going. She really saw the potential for you as a story worth writer. Is there anything you'd like to share with Dina now?
1: I want to thank you, honey, because you've allowed me to to share a lot of thoughts and memories so that our grandchildren will be able to understand what life was like in the uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s. So thank you, baby.
0: Next, we have a story about a truly iconic Italian-American dad and accomplished musician, Fran Sippel tells us about her dad and his star-studded life.
2: My father's father, Cuono, which is Tony in Italian news, came to the United States from Calabria, Italy. He was an orchestra maestro. He later played in Chicago at the 1930s World Fair and played behind stars like Sally Rand. He was also the lead trumpet player on all of the original Popeye the Sailor cartoons. My father's father did teach him how to play the trumpet, so my dad learned well and he played in the Gay Claridge Band. Later, he became the lead trumpet player at the Shea in Chicago with the Ralph Martieri Band. There, he soloed behind famous people like Sammy Davis Jr. and Lena Horne, who nicknamed him Johnny the Lip, and gifted him with a handmade tie on her closing night. Sophie Tucker, also famous, woke him up backstage with her feather fan under his nose. Anthony, my older brother, recalls Gay and Ralph coming to the home. Now, they were from the Gay Claridge Band on numerous occasions to eat homemade Italian food made by Grandma Nuzzo. Uncle Jimmy Lotto told my brother that he got a call from my dad one night at 2 a.m. Dad said, my car broke down and I need you to come pick me up at this little eatery on State Street in Chicago. Can you come give me a ride? Jimmy, who is in his pajamas, hurriedly threw on his overcoat and drives to State Street. He rushes downstairs to the basement eatery and he sees dad having breakfast with Frank Sinatra and Gene Krupa, a famous drummer. During his career, dad played in a band to entertain soldiers who were wounded in World War II. My oldest brother, Anthony, told me that my dad told him, quote, some were blind and others were missing arms or legs, end quote. And it made him sad to tell Anthony about them. There were many movie stars in the military like Tyrone Power and Benny Goodman, and dad would come to the Shepery with these friends in uniform. He was later awarded the Certificate of Appreciation from Gardner General Hospital in 1944 for providing entertainment to wounded soldiers. When dad was at the top of his career, he was hit by another driver on his way home. According to my brother, Anthony he smashed his lip on the steering wheel. The accident set him back a year and he had to rebuild his embouchure, which is the muscle above your lip so that he could play strong again all night long. After the accident, he performed local jobs instead of jobs that required traveling if it weren't for the accident. Dad would have become famous. My dad had a remarkable sense of humor, and I have an old cassette tape where my dad was reading me Little Red Riding Hood, and he said, All right, now here's Little Red Riding Hood, all right? You see her? Now, Little Red Riding Hood ain't pretty, and she ain't ugly, but she's pretty ugly. When all the kids in the neighborhood started smoking cigarettes, my dad took me out to the front porch and lit a cigarette for me to try. Franzoon, take a deep breath, inhale very deeply, and I ended up coughing and coughing and coughing. He said, there, now you tried one and you never have to try one again. And guess what? I never did. I was eight years old. He would always watch movies like Goodfellas and Godfather and tell me they were love stories. He nicknamed me Franzoon, and he would make comments like, hey, let's hurry up and fire up the grill. Put the food on so we could throw it away. When I was leaving his house, the rearview mirror on my pickup truck caught on one of the metal posts holding up his carport. I kept hearing this weird sound, and I could not figure out why my pickup truck wouldn't back up. Dad comes running out, and I finally realize I had totally bent the carport post. I thought my dad was going to be mad, and he's like, "Mad? Are you kidding me? I love it. It's art." that was my dad. And so dad, I love you. Happy Father's Day, wherever you are right now.
0: Fran, you have such a way with storytelling and you clearly have a lot of fun with it.
2: Did you start the StoryWorth process knowing that you'd enjoy it so much? When I first, I'm just thinking to myself, like, I don't freaking have time to do one more thing. Like, I don't even, and then it like, it hit me. It's like, oh my God, I could write my family stories. And so I became addicted to StoryWorth and would just write different family stories. And it was amazing. I'm so glad that you're having such a good
0: time. That's really what we hope for. It sounds like you must be a pretty prolific writer if you love it so much.
2: Well, I would forward the stories to my kids and like on some days, I'm not kidding you, I would crank out like three family funny stories because all our family is just hilarious. And they would be laughing and they'd be like, oh my God, is that all you do is write on story worth?" I'm like, yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Baseball
0: is not only America's national pastime, it's often a family's favorite pastime. Patrick Cronin tells us a story about three generations love of the game and how that binds them together. As he answers the question, what sports teams were you a fan of when you were a child?
3: I wrote this poem that I'm about to read, and this is how the story actually happened. Passing. My father and I would have a pass in the yard after he got back from work. He almost always said yes, pungent with rubber, crooked fingers black. hid coil, uncoil in precision, rhythmic grace like one of the machines he daily fed. And after each toss from his smoky face, he'd pluck his lip-hung cigarette. In the beginning, his throes were arcing, soft, spinning slowly, whispering between us. Some I dropped and some I kept aloft. In either case, he never made a fuss. Later, he flattened out his throes, tightened the spin, so they would fairly hum through the air like little bees in narrow rows, stinging back and forth until we both were numb. In time, as if a talisman, the ball he waved about his head and let it fly. Like magic, it would bend and dart and fall into my glove, and then it'd make me try. Now, while reaching back to pass with you, my son, I hear again the whispers by my ear and gently turn the ear with what was spun by fathers who have passed as we do here. It was the summer of 1961, and although the passes with my father were not as frequent as they had been when I was five or six, they would never be more than a toss glove away for many more years. Still, my father continued to whisper to me through baseball in a way that did not become clear to me until long after he was gone during a game at Fenway Park. As a kid growing up, I would always sign up for the annual Little League trips to Fenway to see the Red Sox play, and the memories of those trips remain with me to this day. Who could ever forget seeing the great Ted Williams swing a baseball bat? How many times does one witness perfection in a lifetime? or Jimmy Pearsall print around the bases after hitting a home run. And there are the unforgettable plays by visiting players with unforgettable names, such as Minnie Minoso leaping high off the green monster, trying to take a Sox hit away, or Rocky Colavito gunning a runner into submission with a throw. that must have been the precursor to the laser beam. But in 1961, the news was all pinstripe. The New York Yankees with Marison Mantle were what the baseball world was talking about. Crashing home run after home run, the m M&M and boys dominated the sports pages for most of the summer as they both closed in on Babe Ruth's single-season home run record of 60. So when my father said he had managed to get tickets to a Red Sox-Yankees game as an early birthday present, I couldn't believe it. I know it was a weekend game because Dad was busy working at the factory during the week. I do remember that it was exactly a week before my birthday, so it must have been September 23rd. I also recall that Mantle did hit a home run that day and Maris didn't. A week and a day later, of course, Maris hit his 61st off Tracy Stallard in Yankee Stadium. But what sticks out more than anything else about the game, more than the home run, or the standing ovations, or even all the great players, is that I was there with my father. I can feel him next to me talking quietly, pointing out the little things about the game, the players in the ballpark that I would otherwise have missed, passing with me as he had done so many times in the backyard, only this time with the word. With the experience, but still, as so very often with baseball, it was truly wonderful. My father and I often talked of going to another Red Sox game together, but the Yankees game in September of 1961 turned out to be the only one time we actually did. Years later, my father and I spoke of taking my son Patrick to a game once he was old enough, just the three of us. When Patrick was still very young, my father learned that he had lung cancer. Eight months later, he was dead at the age of 57. In 1988, when Patrick was 10, he and I took our first father-son trip to Fenway. It was a glorious, sunny Saturday, just as it had been in 61. And although the opponent was Chicago and not New York, we reveled together in the Fenway atmosphere, perched in the blue seats behind home plate, slurping sodas, catching bags of peanuts and sharing observations and snatches of baseball wisdom. As we did, I thought about my father, wishing he was still alive knowing how much he would have enjoyed being there with us. Then something happened that convinced me that he was there and made me understand that he would always be with us. It all started with a Larry Parish foul ball. It came unexpectedly, suddenly flying up from home plate, becoming larger and more real as it approached our section. But it was off to our right a bit, just missing the edge of the net that was hanging over us to capture some errant balls. My eyes followed it as it hit above seven or eight rows behind us, and somehow, like magic, it caromed back beneath the net to where we were sitting. Time seemed to slow as I stood, reached out with my left hand, and caught the spinning balls it came back to me. It was the most improbable of foul ball catches, and still unbelieving, I handed the ball to Patrick, who could barely collect enough breath to blurt out a thanks. It was a moment of intense pleasure for both of us, something we knew even then we would talk about for years to come. Patrick producing the ball over and over again, the proof of our tremendous good fortune in famous Fenway Park. Give the kid the ball, someone from above us shouted. But of course, I had already done that. Yet the same call echoed to us again a few seconds later. Patrick was too busy examining his souvenir to notice, but I was becoming a bit confused. There was something in the voice that concerned me. When I heard give the kid the ball for the third time, I turned and looked up towards the section from which the voices were coming which was just about where the foul ball had bounced. That's when I saw to my horror a small boy of five or six years old who was being helped by an usher. The poor kid was crying and it was obvious that the angry red egg in the middle of his forehead marked the spot where the foul ball had first come crashing down. It now seemed that in less than a minute's time, what had looked like the fulfillment of one of Patrick's dreams was about to become a nightmare. Like the voices in the crowd, I also felt the little boy Had earned the baseball. In fact, he had paid a pretty stiff price for it. For him to come away with nothing but a lump would be a shame. But I had another small boy sitting next to me who was clutching the ball, probably busy thinking about all the players who had just touched it, completely unaware of the drama unfolding around him. I felt like Solomon confronted with two mothers and one baby. But in my case, it was two boys and one baseball. I really wasn't sure what to do, if anything. Patrick, I said, leaning close to him. The ball hit a little boy right in the head. He's crying, and the people are calling for you to give him the ball so that he'll feel better. Saying the words aloud made me realize what an enormous dilemma this presented for one so young. Yet I believed that this was one of those times when he would have to decide what to do on his own. But I just got it, Dad, he said incredulously. But the look on his face showed me that he was beginning to understand the problem. Silently, he kept turning and turning the ball in his hand staring at it as if it were crystal and held the answer for which he was searching. I waited, pretending to watch the game below. Okay, he said finally, I'll give it to him. Now was I who could barely speak, a father's pride choking off any response I might have wanted to make. Just then another voice called for him to give the little boy the ball. He's coming out now, I managed to say. I stood to let Patrick by as he began to make his way to the other end of the road. In his dark blue Red Sox cap and red, white, and blue Red Sox t-shirt, Patrick slowly moved through the rows. People stood to let him pass. When he reached the aisle, I noticed that he was not just the people in our row who were standing. People were rising from their seats in row after row in tears behind us. At the same time, I became aware of the loud applause that was beginning to build throughout the entire back of the ballpark, although I did not want to lose sight of Patrick in such a large crowd. I chanced a quick look over my shoulder at the field, suspecting that I had missed a home run, but that was not the case. As I turned back, it dawned on me. Patrick was getting a standing ovation. Up the aisle, he went in pursuit of the injured boy, who by this time had been helped up the stairs towards the first aid station and was disappearing behind the top row. Patrick followed him, and I had an anxious moment when I lost sight of him. A minute later, though, Patrick came back into view at the top of the aisle, then, incredibly, The entire section stood and gave him a second ovation as he returned to his seat. And as he passed me, I reached out and touched him gently on the shoulder and whispered, nice going. I believe it happens to all of us at one time or another. We make some small gesture, use a word, or phrase, and for that instant actually become one of our parents. Sometimes we like it, sometimes we don't. But in either case, the experience is one that makes us stop and acknowledge it. We feel as if we have been transported back through time and made to see the world through the eyes of our father or mother. And at that moment, I knew my father was there with us, whispering, still passing, with me and with my son. Before we left the ballpark, I bought a souvenir Red Sox baseball for Patrick. When we got home, I packaged the ball and sent it right out with a letter to Larry Parrish explaining what had happened. Within days, the ball came back. On it was written the following, Dear Patrick, you are a good kid. Wish you all the best, Larry Parrish. One day this past summer, Patrick brought out two baseball gloves, tossed one of them to me and we had a pass. We didn't speak, at least not in words anyone else could hear. He doesn't drop many of my throws anymore and his throws are almost always on the money. And they're picking up quite a bit of speed too. He's even starting to get that tight spin you like to see on the curve. He turned 13 this summer. I thought of this as we passed quietly The slap of leather, the only sound breaking our silent conversation. I looked at him and smiled, seeing myself, seeing my father, and seeing his father before him. And I knew it was time for us to take another trip to Fenway.
0: Pat, it's clear from your story that baseball is really meaningful to you. Not just as a fan, but as someone whose family bonds are strengthened with each game of catch. How did your family react to this story, or all of your stories for that matter?
3: I'm the oldest of eight. My siblings have passed the book around and they went crazy with it. I mean, they were so surprised. I I have to tell you that I was overwhelmed with their response. And I think it uh, the relationships were always good, but they became even closer and stronger because I do write about them as well. And I write about them in ways that you would never necessarily talk about. As I tell them, I knew mom and dad longer than you did because I... I was the first child born, don't forget it. And I remember them when they were young and I remember all these things. Let me tell you, they just loved it, loved it.
0: We needed a tissue for this next one. John Sharoon shares his feelings about being a divorced dad as he answers the question, what aspects of having children didn't turn out the way you expected?
4: Wow, this is a very tough one. If you'd have asked me prior to marriage, or even during the early years of marriage, I would never have said I would not have my precious daughter in my life every day of our lives in the same household. No doubt the biggest regret and heartbreak of my life. I want to keep this in proper context. I'm not complaining. People get divorced. It happens. The challenge is how do you deal with the fallout while trying to minimize the damage to all involved? mom, dad, and beautiful, altogether innocent daughter, who has to deal with the realities of divorce in her life as well. We can only hope, but we will never know for sure whether we handled it well. I can say we did our best, and our focus as parents was to provide a loving, supportive home for our Adriana, and to keep her away from any of the issues that arise in most divorces. Much is made of single moms raising children. I take nothing away from their hardships and have nothing but supportive of their struggles and daily challenges. Having said that, dad's side of the equation isn't always talked about or obvious. Beyond the tremendous guilt is also the heartache of not having your child with you daily and missing so much of their lives. While today we have all the modern technology around communications and video links, in my day, we didn't even have cell phones. So communication and regular contact was even more difficult. Missing all the firsts in your daughter's life is tough. Everything is secondhand on the weekends, holidays, or rare evening visits that you had the pleasure and excitement of seeing your little girl. Think about it. No immediate involvement in first words, first steps, first bike ride, first day at school, and on and on. The missed firsts are too many to even count. Things not available to separate a dad. How many hugs, kisses, cuddles, story times missed, too many to even know? How many nights sitting home wondering what your daughter is doing, what she did during the day, what new and exciting things happened to her, and worse, is she thinking about you and missing you as much as you miss her? Then things get really complicated. In comes the new boyfriend or stepdad, more worries. Is he a good guy? Is he going to be good to your daughter? Is he going to love her and care for her as much as you do? And even more concerning, is he going to take your place? Is your daughter going to love him more than you? How can you even compete when someone is there every day? None of it is easy. I'll never forget one day when Adriana asked me to go on a school dad-daughter trip. I had such a great day. I was so proud to be able to do something so normal with my girl and be in her school life, even just for one day but the day ends in heartache when you drop her off and make your way home alone again. Weekends, vacations, and the occasional day or midweek visit can never be enough. You wonder constantly, am I doing enough? Does she know how much I love her? How can I make that vital connection that only being there every day gives you? Is it ever going to be enough? Can the relationship ever be close to normal? How is your daughter feeling about it all? How is it affecting her? always more questions and answers and so much guilt. Very hard for Virgo, dad, to digest and rationalize. Virgos rule and organize the world. We're not supposed to have chaos in our lives. We fix things and make them right, but no way to get it right in these circumstances. You can only hope and pray you've done your best and that's going to be good enough. Then the unbelievable happens. Somebody walks into your life with kids of her own, Again, if you ever asked me while single if I would have four children and a blended family, I could never have predicted that. Gail stole my heart and soul and became my lifelong partner. I knew she would be my wife the very first time I saw her smile, her joy, her kind eyes, and her warm heart. To know and love her was to wholeheartedly welcome her children into my life, but more work and uncertainty. How is Adriana going to be affected by this new development? Will she be accepting of the new woman in your life? Will the children get along? How is this all going to work? How can I be sure she knows I don't love her any less and she isn't any less important in my life and that I miss her every bit as much as I always have? Is she thinking the same thing I was thinking when stepdad and sister came into her life? Is she feeling threatened or insecure? How do I make that right? You can only hope you've done and said the right things and had the right conversations along the way. As you get older, as I am now, you reflect on everything you did and how you may have been able to do more. You hope and you pray you've done all you could. You know you didn't do everything right. No one teaches you to be a dad in absentia. It's not the way it's supposed to be, but hopefully you got most of it right. I could also never have anticipated the tremendous joy all my children have brought to my life. How proud I am to see them as wonderful adults, responsible and loving parents in their own right, with the best set of grandchildren a grandfather could ever have. It brings joy to my heart and tears to my eyes. You think maybe I did get some of it right, but the doubt never goes away.
0: John, thanks so much for this story. I just have to know, has Adriana read this story?
4: She did read the story. It caused us to have a very meaningful talk about all the things that I did do and all the things that she did appreciate. And the fact that, um, you know, we remain very close to this day. It was cathartic, I think, for both of us.
0: You said you're a grandparent now. How is being grandpa different from being dad?
4: Being a parent and being a grandparent is different in many ways, you know, in that, you know, you're, you're older, you're wiser. I think you have, you know, less pressure. So I think you, you tend to have more time on your hands, more, you know, more patience, you know, as a grandparent than you might've had as a parent. But then add the divorce factor. I mean, I spend more time with my grandchildren in their younger days than, unfortunately, I got to spend with Adriana. So when I spend time with Adriana's children, it just uh, it's just so meaningful um, and so precious because I see her in them. And, you know, I get to pick up what I missed.
0: Thanks for joining us today. If you want to get started writing your life stories or want to give the gift of StoryWorth to a dad, brother, son, or any loved one in your life, head over to StoryWorth.com slash podcast. Season two of the StoryWorth podcast is coming soon. In the meantime, you can listen to all of season one wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, subscribe to the show. Share an episode with a friend. StoryWorth is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, hosted by me, Krista Baum, produced by Hannah Ray Leach. We get production help from Jill Granberg, and our mix engineer is Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time.